This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. So again, uh, good morning, everyone, um, and thank you for coming. It's uh, nice to have uh, people join us from near and far um, on Saturdays and other times. I, I don't want to take more, more of Cohen's time than is absolutely necessary, but uh, I did just want to say a few words. Cohen was uh, born in Helena, Montana, but uh, spent a lot of his young, younger, <laughs> I'll say younger adult life in Japan. So he was ordained 20 years ago now, and then trained at uh, two monasteries in Japan, Zuyoji and Shogoji, and then returned to the United States and uh, was the resident priest of the Anchorage Zen community in Alaska. That was from 2006 to 2010. Um, and there uh, he practiced with our very own Karen Lang. And he's now the uh, guiding teacher, the, the head teacher um, at Thousand Harbors Zen, which is in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Um, and I'm familiar with Cohen from his many essays, which you can find scattered around uh, the web. I began to uh, encounter his teaching that way, um, and I always found it extremely clear and helpful, um, and then got to know him a little bit through uh, the Soto Zen Buddhist Association in recent years. So I was delighted that he accepted our invitation uh, to speak, and uh, without further ado, welcome again, and thank you, Colin. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. It's really a pleasure to be here. I've always wanted to visit in person, and and so this feels like a great first step. I want to acknowledge before we start, I know it was mentioned earlier, how so many of you have been through such an ordeal uh, over the last couple of weeks, and some of you may still be kind of in the, the depths of that. I'm very grateful everyone's face on the screen. Obviously, you, you have at least electricity. Um, uh, but I know it's been a lot, and I find it really motivating personally to know that all of you took the time to be here today when you probably have a lot of things to attend to. So, so thank you. Thank you very much for, for that. The topic for today's talk is what is lay practice? This was suggested to me, and... I kind of leapt on it, but, but I want to be very clear from the beginning, not because I know the answer, but because the question itself raises so many questions for me. It, it brings up so many different ideas. It, it kind of pokes at so many concerns that I have that I thought it would be kind of fun to, to unpack. So please bear with me. I have a million thoughts. There's a notion going back to the, the beginnings of Buddhism of the fourfold sangha, that there are four assemblies within the larger assembly. And that's monks, nuns, laymen, and laywomen. And before I dive into that, we should acknowledge that as, as powerful as that notion is, it has limitations just on the surface as people in 2021 we can see, first of all, that it's extremely binary, right? That there are, there are only men and there are only women. Also, that the order in which I said them, 
monks, nuns, laymen, and laywomen have historically been an order of rank within that larger assembly. Even So even as we're talking out of one side of our mouth and saying we need all four, there's always been this idea that, yeah, we need all four, but they should line up in a different order in the room. So keep that in mind. The fourfold Sangha first comes up, from my understanding, in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, in which the Buddha says that he would not be able to enter Nirvana unless there were, quote, accomplished, trained, and skilled followers from all four of the categories. So he would actually be tethered to samsara unless he achieved this mass of followers and they had to have they had to be accomplished they had to be trained and they had to be skilled okay and he doesn't make any further distinctions about that in the pasadika sutta this notion of the fourfold sangha comes up again in this case the buddha is talking about how the presence of confident disciples in all four of these categories is one of the prime distinguishing marks of Buddhism itself, that we don't see this in other traditions, non-Buddhist traditions. And so to understand what Buddhism is, we have to understand the presence of these four. We have to see all four. And then just as a, a kind of neat note, I learned while I was looking this up that in the Lakana Sutta, it's explained that on the Buddha's feet, and you've all seen images of the Buddha's, the soles of Buddha's feet, right? There are these markings, that one of the markings is of um, a wheel. There's always a wheel. And that the meaning of that wheel, it's not the Dharma wheel as we usually think of it. It's the, the wheel represents the Buddha being surrounded by the fourfold assembly. He's at the center. And these four categories of disciples are all around. So they're, they're actually built into the Buddha's body. I found that really, really lovely. So to even talk about this idea of, of lay practice, we start from the notion that the assumption that is absolutely necessary and that it's absolutely vital to the health and future of Buddhism or in our case of this particular tradition within Buddhism. So why do we even ask the question? Because there's a problem, right? What I'm describing when I talk about the fourfold assembly, what the Buddha described in the fourfold assembly is something like, like a chart with quadrants. But in reality, across Buddhist traditions and also within Zen, even today, I think we, we see it more as a pyramid where monastics are on the top, they're at the pinnacle of practice and they're the fewest usually, right? And then we expand downward and downward to these masses of people who, while greater in number, are seen as ultimately below. This has been the case for centuries. Or we see it as a spectrum where on one hand, there's, there's no access to anything like monastic training. 
And on the other hand, there's a monastic or there's a monastic path. And, and within that spectrum, overlaid on top, we imagine that there's a kind of quality to practice, right? That this is the shallow end of the pool, that maybe if you stay here, you don't know as much as if you're over here. That's a huge problem. There's an amazing book that has uh, just come out by Bhikkhu Analayo called Superiority Conceit. I recommend it to, to everyone. And in it, he talks about three um, superiority complexes that exist within Buddhism traditionally. One is men over women. The next is Mahayana over Theravada. And the next is Theravada over Mahayana. And he picks apart the how problematic these views are and and what he doesn't include in the book and i wish he had but he has written about it elsewhere is the superiority conceit of ordained overlay the notion of the fourfold sangha makes absolutely clear that monastic practice and lay practice are equal they're not the same right but that if you take one away, the structure collapses. So again, we start with that. We start with how critical that is. And then I think we start to ask the bigger question, which is why are we asking what lay practice is? After 2,500 years, after 2,600 years of this framework being in place, though obviously not always upheld, why do we find ourselves today asking this question? Almost everyone in this room is a lay practitioner. Almost every Zen practitioner in the West is a lay practitioner. You would think we would know the answer to this question, but we don't, not really. I think part of the reason for that is because we've imagined that lay practice, again, because of this idea of a spectrum, that lay practice is an imitation of monastic practice. It's a, it's a take-home version of monastic practice, or it's a retreat version of monastic practice, where you get to kind of touch it. You get to, you get to try it on. And, and different centers do this differently. In some cases, Lay people are putting on robes and, and, uh, and, and getting very close to that kind of identity of a monastic. Uh, in other cases, it's all about holding seshin and trying to recreate the monastic experience. It's about ritual. It's about kind of opening that window for a moment for lay people. All of which is, is beautiful. That's a beautiful offering. But in that construct, the depth of your practice, the quality of your practice is in direct proportion to the degree of contact you have with that monastic model, right? How much are you able to dive in? And throughout the tradition, you know, Zen has been very good in a way of upholding the idea of lay practitioners. But they've done it, I think, in the same way that they've often held up uh, for example, women in the tradition. Not because they're giving these people so much attention, but because they want to make a point. 
And sometimes that point is quite cynical. It's to say, look, even lay practitioners can get this. Even women can be enlightened. That's amazing. And sometimes it's slightly more generous to say, you know, to, to make the point of saying, look how, how open and inclusive and available these teachings are. But when we look at some of those, those stories, whether we're talking about lay people or women, and of course, in most cases, if we're talking about women, we're talking about lay people. When you dig into those stories, when you dig into those characters, you find it's not people who are living lay lives in the way that we would usually understand them. Right. The lay people that we hold up as uh, models for the tradition are people who gave away everything. And they visited the monastery every day. And they gave to the monastery everything they had. And they basically practiced twice as hard as the monks just while keeping their family. This starts to feel very familiar. You know, how many times have we been told, just especially in the last few years, reminded, pointed out that, that women, that people of color have to work twice as hard and do twice as well to get the same recognition as someone else in the workforce, in society. So our tradition holds up lay people, but they're lay people who have gone to an extreme level of renunciation in many cases. Again, and I wanna be really clear about this. While, while I do believe that this is a path of renunciation, whether you're lay or ordained, and I do absolutely believe that the ordained path in particular has to embrace that model of renunciation, Renunciation as a monastic is relatively easy. There's a container for it. There's support for it. You walk into a room and everyone is doing the same thing. Everyone is celebrating what you're doing. No one is offering a plan B. You settle into it very, very naturally. You know, giving those things up when no one else has them. It's not that hard. Renunciation on the level of someone like, is it layman pain? You know, to, to dedicate yourself entirely to formal practice while at the same time maintaining all of your secular responsibilities. That's asking a lot. So we come to this question of what is lay practice? And I think we're missing the point. To ask what is lay practice is at its heart to say, what is practice? We're not really sure what's at the heart of it. And so we point instead to this monastic model, which is so formalized. It's such a clear, obvious container. There's a privilege in that. I think one of the experiences of being a lay person, and, and this was part of my experience as a lay person, was that whether it's a conscious thought or it's kind of a hum in the back of your mind, you come to this practice with the idea that there's a curtain and that you're not sure what's behind that curtain. But you know that's where the really good stuff is. 
whether that curtain is an ordained path or whether that curtain is enlightenment, there's a feeling that you're here and there's a barrier. And if you could just see beyond the barrier, you would see the, the scope of it. And I'll acknowledge, because I think it's complicated, part of that is great. If you sit down every day with the idea that there's something you're not seeing, your eyes may be just a little bit more open, right? Things may be a little more fresh. That's connected to beginner's mind. That, that open question of what else? What else? But it's also a delusion. There is nothing behind that curtain. And the privilege of being someone who has, you know, walked through the curtain is to get there and know, oh, there's nothing here. And so you get to let go of that. That's also a privilege. That's also a gift. But on that side of the curtain, you can lose that freshness. You can lose that sense of wonder. And I don't know how you reconcile those two. I think we, we, we straddle this path. But if you're a monastic, you, you enter into a certain kind of space. And there are certain expectations placed on you about how to live, how to walk, how to stand, how to eat, how to speak. There's a kind of, um, you know, in, in Zen, we don't have the Vinaya, we don't have those rules, but we have what's called the Shingi, which is essentially uh, an adaptation of the Vinaya for monastic life. And it lays out the schedule of your life. It lays out what you do on this day and how you do it and how you dress when you do it and who does what first. There are a lot of exciting and fascinating discussions happening in the West about what is a priest. And those conversations are worth having, but there's a simple answer, which is a priest is someone who does those things. It's not that complicated. There's a way to measure it. For lay people, we don't have that metric. This applies not just to lay practitioners in general, but also to the question of lay teachers, which has been a, a, another big interesting question in the West in the last few decades. There are some traditions where the metric of practice is some sort of attainment. It's some sort of insight, right? And so if you feel confident in measuring that in another person, and you're from one of those traditions, <laughs> people are shaking their heads. But if you do, then you can point to that person and say, okay, you've, you've arrived, you get an A. <laughs> I'm going to give you a certain kind of status. But in this tradition, historically, the metric of practice is the training itself. And so we look at someone who is ordained and we say, okay, this person trained in a particular way and they internalized that, that training in a particular way. And now they embody that training in a particular way. Okay, I'm going to approve you and now the color of your robe will change. 
something will happen. But if we take away that other part, that container, that training from the beginning, or if we don't all have equal access to it, and how could we? Then we no longer have that metric for lay practice. What are we measuring? If we're measuring some kind of attainment, well, now we're measuring something that no one measured on us. <laughs> we need to look deeply at what is at the heart of this practice. And if in fact these two paths are both equally critical, and if they are truly equal in the eyes of the tradition, and I'm going to say they are, in spite of all the historical evidence to the contrary, then we have to find some sort of common place, something that is not that training, that is not that form, that is not that easily definable space. And I told you at the beginning, I don't have the answer, but I'm gonna offer a few thoughts on what I think might be at least part of it. What's at the heart of Soto Zen practice? One, I think it's rooted in vow. And by vow, I, I mean, we say the Bodhisattva vows, but, but underneath those vows, there's another vow. There's the thing that allows us to say those vows. There's the reason that we come to the practice in the first place. There's some sense of offering. There's an impulse to give. That's what I mean by vow. I think it starts there, or at least it can't be without it. Two, it's embodied. It's physically expressed. And again, for monastics, it's easy because you're told you have to stand this way. You have to hold objects this way. Taken out of that container, it's a little harder. It's, again, it's, it's a question mark. It's a curiosity about each moment. It's standing in line at the bank and saying, am I standing up straight? Maybe I could. Not because straight is right, but because bringing myself to what I'm doing feels like that's in accord with the practice. We know from sitting what it is to be at attention in our lives. And we draw from that and we notice when we're eating, am I being passive in this moment or am I bringing myself to it? Am I meeting it? And specifically, am I meeting it, not just in my mind, which is, that's made up. That's a fantasy to slouch in your chair and say, no, but spiritually I'm here. Am I sitting up and am I meeting this with everything that I have? I think that can look like a thousand different things, but that, that decision to lean forward a little bit, I think that's also at the heart of Soto Zen practice and available to anybody, anytime. My third is that it stems from practice verification. This was Dogen's big teaching. That practice and the verification of that practice, sometimes we call it practice enlightenment, are the same. Which is to say, this isn't a seeking practice. We aren't practicing in order to 
get something else. We aren't practicing to achieve something else. We aren't practicing because practice is a symbol of something else. Each moment, each action is in itself full and complete. And that is equally true in robes bowing in front of an altar and in the entryway of your house trying to get your kids to put their shoes on. That moment is complete. And what you bring to it in that moment is the total culmination of the experiences you've had in your lifetime up to that moment. That's what you're expressing. And in the next moment, and the next moment, and the next moment, it's the same. That's what this practice looks like. And you don't need robes to know that. And then the fourth thing that I wanted to say is that like all of Buddhist practice, any genuine practice is rooted in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. But with the footnote that we can't really avoid Buddha and we can't really avoid Dharma. They're baked in, but we can avoid Sangha easily. And so part of lay practice in particular, because monastic practice is built on a Sangha model, part of lay practice in particular is choosing community. And, and I'll give you a hint about that. Because what choosing community means for most of us who wear robes, because we aren't in monasteries, we're, we're in lay communities, it's that you're choosing to be a part of someone else's practice. You're choosing to encourage someone else in their practice. You're choosing to be the Sangha component that they need. I know from experience and from all the people I speak to, you can go decades in this practice without noticing that the reason you show up at the center is not for you, but for everyone else there. And they're doing that for you. And when you can embrace that, when you can recognize that dynamic, it changes everything. Because then Sangha is inextricably linked to that original vow. Those are my four. And I'm almost finished. And I wanna end on this point because it's something I've been thinking about a lot in, in relationship to this and, and in relationship to the bigger picture of, of Zen, which is, we always have this danger of reifying Zen, of, of holding up Zen as if it's a thing, right? As if it's real, as if it's something to be preserved, something we have to be kind of careful with. A, we don't have to be careful with it. B, though, is that a major function of Zen practice is to dismantle Zen itself. We take on all this scaffolding, all this support, right? In my case, I have so much, right? It's not just the robes. It's not just the training. It's not just my teachers. It's not just the Sangha. It's this whole idea of tradition. It all holds me up. But it holds me up so that I can find a kind of balance point and start letting all that go. At the end of the day, whether we're ordained or we're lay, whether we're men or women, regardless of how we enter this practice, regardless of what brought us to it, 
regardless of the shape of our practice. We should be finding that balance point. And as we are shedding the rest so that in the end, we're left completely empty handed. So that practice looks not like this particular form or this particular structure, but so that it just looks like open sky. And open sky is the same for everyone. And that's where I'll stop. Thank you so much, Cohen. I feel like I would like to crawl into some uh, space with you and just talk for several hours. <laughs> um, but I, I will, uh, and there's a, there's a comment from one of our members, same, she says, <laughs> same. <laughs> uh, so we'll open it up to questions and um, I'll try to recognize people Sean has raised his hand. Thank you for the talk. <laughs> and uh, do you have any thoughts on why we desire or long for there to be something behind this curtain when at the same time we know there's nothing behind this curtain? Oh, because we don't, we don't really know that there's nothing behind the curtain. Okay. We, intellectually, maybe, you know, someone can say that, but, uh, you know, if, if, if I gave you an, a really pretty box with a lock on it and I, I, you know, said, just keep this in your living room, <laughs> but don't open it or you can't open it because I don't have the key. I guarantee you'll spend your life being sure there's something in there. Even if I say it's empty, that's just who we are. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Thank you. Bruce. Cohen, thank you so much for that talk. It was um, very refreshing and very clarifying. I, I, it, it, it was one of those talks where I said, well, of course, but why did I never see that that way? <laughs> like, like now it seems more obvious, but it, it touches on questions that, to use your analogy, were kind of like humming in the background a lot, but, but aren't brought in clear sight much. And I had, um, I, I've been a resident at AZC for coming up on six years, I think. And I had a very clear intention. I lived in Austin previously, moved away and moved back. And when I moved back, it was with a clear intention that I have not found it difficult to practice on my own as much as I think other people do because it comes up often. Like I, it's hard, it's hard. It's like, no, it's kind of easier for me because I just do it and I don't have to go somewhere and I don't have to sit around people who are distracting or I don't have to, you know, like I can set the lighting and the temp, like, like why is that hard? But I understand it, it's, it's, it is challenging because you don't have the accountability factor as much. No one's necessarily gonna know. Um, but I found that- in, Sorry? You don't get points when you focus on your own. <laughs> well, yeah, and I am I am a recovering honors student, so it's like that's that's you know I understand that draw very all all too well. But in this period where I was away from Austin and practicing on my own, one thing did feel off, which was I felt like even though I was sitting every day and I was reading and listening to talks, 
I, I felt like I was uh, going in circles in, in a sense and not digging deeper and like digging deeper, diving deeper, whatever was, was on my mind a lot. Like, what does that, what would that mean? What would that look like? And I thought, because then my work situation changed such that I could very easily move. And I thought, well, what should I do? What, what form should that take? And so I think without getting too much into my life history, the, the, the reason that I wanted to, to pick your brain on this a little bit was that I think that we do have this, I, I think a lot of us are in this position of trying to figure out, well, I want to do more than dabble, but I don't necessarily want to go for full immersion, you know, and, and just set everything else aside and go live in a monastery. So there's this really wide, weird, tricky middle ground between like dabbling and immersion. And it gets difficult sometimes, particularly because Zen centers tend to be nonprofits and nonprofits, as I know from my, uh, from my career, uh, can be very, uh, well, there's always way more to be done, right? Than, than time to do it or people available and so forth. And so finding the balance between kind of Zen as a hobby that every once in a while, I, or, or be, like the, the balance between being a Zen tourist and being like nothing but Zen, like that's really hard. And like any insight that, that you might have on like finding one's place between those two extremes of being involved enough that you feel like, like you're really digging into it, but maintaining some sense of boundary I, I don't know. I, I think that's about as much as I can say. So I, I, I look forward to whatever clear, clarity you might be able to provide. <laughs> yeah, and and I, I understand the question. I think that there's um, that tension is real, and it's felt in all directions, right? So that you know, if someone is um, a resident for a few years and they don't seem to be going away, for example, then at some point people are like, well, shouldn't you ordain? You know, it, it like because there's this this feeling that everything goes in this one direction. It never goes in a different direction, right? You're you're only and if you and if you were to say no, then you're kind of you're. It looks like you're choosing not to go deep, in a sense, right? Um, I think that's a that's a huge institutional problem. First of all, because there is a sense that. Again, that 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 we're measuring practice by involvement, and I don't want to say don't dive into the the center where you're at. Don't dive into that kind of community support. You know, all of that is is huge, and it, and again, it's 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 huge because you're actually making the whole thing possible for everybody else, right? That's that's um, that's a very powerful thing to to take on. But, but in terms of going deep, actually going deep, you know, we have to divorce that idea from the idea that, that, that going deep means I have to be there, right? Or that I have to be doing something that looks like Zen. Um, someone just recommended to me this book called Breath. Some of you may have heard of it by, I want to say, I won't get the, the author right, but it's a relatively recent book. And 
uh, I just started reading it, but one of the things that the author is talking about in the beginning, and I love this because this just feels, this, this is what Zen practice feels like to me. He's saying that there are lots of health problems that human beings have that stem from the fact that we breathe through our mouths so much. And, and so he says, you've got you've to change that. You've got to start paying attention to how you breathe and start breathing through your nose. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking, well, I'm ahead of the curve on this. I always breathe through my nose. And I'm thinking, well, I do Zazen every day. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not some guy always breathing through his mouth. So then this morning, I'm running around the house. I'm doing laundry. I'm doing all these things. And I'm really consciously trying to breathe through my nose and realizing as I do, oh, I never breathe through my nose right? I mean, it, I don't want to say never, but it's a very uncomfortable fit as I'm doing these ordinary tasks to keep my mouth shut and just do this other thing, which is so basic. It's so simple. It's the most basic thing we do. So now I'm feeling, and who knows what the punchline of the book is, but just in this moment today, I'm feeling such gratitude because someone gave me a practice that points me back to exactly how I'm being alive in this moment and in every moment. That's going deep as far as I'm concerned. That's the feeling of it. And so that's what I was saying earlier. You know, this, th we all have this question, regardless of our status in the tradition, to, of am I in this moment bringing myself forward or not? And if not, what would it look like to do it? What would it look like to take one step forward? What would it look like to be a little bit more upright? Whether that's in my, my actual posture or in my speech or whatever that is, to, to learn to have that kind of question constantly is what it is to practice constantly. And nothing about that is Zen, right? Nothing about that has to have the word Zen involved. Nothing about that points to uh, a trajectory within a tradition because it's just, it's drilling straight down into where you are right now. That's what I think we need to find ways of, of, of cultivating better in our communities, right? Rather than saying, you know, that, that we have to gather here and then when you go away, you're not practicing, right? We gather here for a little reminder. <laughs> and then the practice is taking place, you know, in every other moment of the week. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. David, I see your hand up. Yeah, David Pakovic. Thank you. Thank you, Koan. That was great. Really had um, my mind um, spinning, I think, in productive ways. Um, and you, you mentioned uh, something as one of your kind of four, what is the heart of Soto Zen practice? practice verification um, and I, that was just a new idea to me and I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what that means to you yeah is that is the term kind of a new term yes 
Yeah. Okay. So uh, there's a, there's a whole story, of course, which is that uh, Dogen, when he was a younger monk, he wasn't a Zen monk. He was a, a Tendai monk, and uh, it was already very very popular at, at that time. This idea of um, uh, a very Mahayana vision that that everyone is already enlightened, essentially, you know, that everyone is already fundamentally Buddha. And Dogen's question was, well, if that's true, that sounds great. If that's true, then why do I have to do anything, right? Why am I, why am I doing Buddhist practice if all the fruition of Buddhist practice is already built into my DNA? What's the point? And he went around and he asked everybody and no one really could give him a, an answer that he found satisfactory. And he ended up going to China. And, and what he came away with after all this, this searching was this idea of practice verification, as in Japanese, shusho. The, the shu is the training and, and sho is like the proof. And, and what he determined was that the you know, like we say, the proof is in the pudding, right? That, that there's just pudding all the way down. <laughs> that that the, the fruit of practice is the practice. It's so in the moment that we're practicing, we are embodying that innate Buddha, that innate awakening. We're kind of meeting it. We're, we're, we're agreeing that we have it and we're picking it up. And in moments when we're not taking that kind of active stance as practice, it's still there, but we're not, we're not handling it. We're not holding it in our hands uh, in the same way. And so his framework for practice was that whatever you do, you understand that, that the, basically that the path and the fruition are, are the same thing. That's practice verification. It's, it's Dogen's big idea. <laughs> Sherry. Thank you so much for your talk. So I have just a personal comment about, um, so Zen coming to whatever country kind of takes on the flavor of, I've read that and certainly here in the United States, I think you can see that. But I, I never realized the the dichotomy, I mean, the uh, teaching, uh, teachers and lay until this moment when we were doing our evening sit followed by our service mm -hmm. and we had no doshi. We had a full zendo of lay practitioners and we're standing there waiting for the doshi who didn't come. And the Eno says, we're not going to have service because they're not here or the doshi, we have no doshi. And I'm thinking, oh, we need that to communicate, to chant, we need that, we need this person. And somehow I was really let down, like, oh my gosh, that I, mm. we're not, the lay people all here aren't really, you know, if we can't, we can't communicate our chanting somehow, because we need that go-between. Right. Since that feeling, uh, it, it hasn't happened, again but it was very like very off-putting and i wonder if that will change and that if we don't have a priest i mean there are a lot of places that don't have priests that chant right right mm -hmm. okay <laughs>
anyway, if you could just address that issue, I would. Sure. Yeah, I, I really understand. And, you know, it's when you're in a monastery there, you get the same split because then the doshi has to be a fully transmitted priest and you can't have novice priests. We would have moments where all the novices were there and then everyone else would get caught up and they couldn't come. And we'd say, oh, I guess we can't do it. And everyone in the room is a priest. It's a, I mean, you kind of have to dig deep into the tradition to, to even know what to think about all that. But, but what I would say to that, because that, that situation, I think, as you're saying, is, is not uncommon. Uh, and there are, as you say, centers where there are no priests. I would really encourage you within your community to, to raise that question directly and say, is there an option B? It, you know, what is, is, does it have to be all or nothing? Can there be a, another way to do it? Um, and if not, then why not? Because that's a really interesting conversation as well to kind of get to those, those philosophical underpinnings. Um, but, but things are changing and, and the way that we do things here is already such a, uh, such a Western evolution of the practice as, as I was trained in it, just across the ocean, that I agree with you, you know, in, in a generation, all of that will look different again. I think it just has to. Karen. Oh, it's so wonderful to see you. <laughs> I was so happy to see your face pop up. This is wonderful. <laughs> it is, it is, it's great. Um, Yes, as people may have heard earlier, Cohen was our teacher in Anchorage um, for several years when I was there, and it was uh, wonderful. Um, and in your in your talk, I was reminded, I think, of maybe this this idea of vow, and uh, perhaps I'm remembering from you speaking of that before. Mm -hmm. um, it really echoed for me. Uh, it feels like really like it that that I mean it's the idea, but this vow has been the sort of tender center of practice for me, and um, and I don't I don't know if I hear that talked about in that way very often, so I really appreciated hearing. Um, hearing that, so so maybe um, maybe just if if you want to if you could say a little bit more about that, um, mm. and I'm thinking just for me, and this this feels funny because it feels so much like form, but um, what I remember is that feeling when I got Araksu that it had to do with with this deep feeling of vow beneath our four vows that um that that was that was what i was doing um that i wasn't doing something that was uh putting me in some place in a hierarchy what it was doing was saying i'm making this vow mm -hmm. and and that sort of you know how i 
how I see it. And I don't know if, if other people feel that way because I see many people who hesitate, for example. Oh, am I ready to do that? And um, because I don't see it as, I, I just see it as this way to vow, maybe. Mm. Um, and I don't know if, if that's right or not. Um, so I just wondered your thoughts on all of that. <laughs> well, first of all, so it sounds very right to me. Um, you know, I can say I'm a big proponent of, of robes. And I, I was saying earlier, you know, how, how supported I feel by this. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah. it's, um, it's hard to even express. I, I put it on and I feel, I feel um, at home. I feel reminded about what my responsibility in the world is. And because as a priest, I also do it in public, I also feel um, the expectations of other people and my responsibility to work with that, right? That, that people assume that you're there to be a benefit. So maybe I should keep that in mind while I'm buying coffee or whatever that is. It's, it's for me, this kind of thing can be a really powerful reminder, but you know, to, to go back to the beginning of what you're saying, I think we, um, so we, we, there's a circle that we talk about in, in Zen and it starts, we say it starts with this thing called Hoshin, which is like the, uh, the arousal of the mind. That's, that's literally what Hoshin is. And Hoshin is the thing that brings you to practice. So the next thing after Hoshin is Shugyo, which is the training. And then after training, we have Bodai. Bodai means bodhisattva, and that's where you're, you know, uh, maybe taking on the vows. And then nehan is nirvana, uh, and or or going beyond. And in the Zen tradition, we always we talk about it as an ongoing circle. So you go back to hoshin, you rediscover hoshin, you rediscover training, you rediscover that whole thing. And you know, one of my teachers he liked to talk about it like turning a screw, that mm -hmm. if you're if you're looking from above, it looks like nothing's happening. But if you look from the side, you can see you're going deeper and deeper and deeper. And, but what, what I think we, we sometimes forget is that Hoshin, because, because, because it's a continuum, there's no, there's no meaningful gap between that arousal of the mind and the vow, right? They're just, the vow becomes an articulation of this arousal of the mind. And that arousal of the mind is deep. It's really, really deep. And, and we can easily walk through this whole practice without ever articulating it, I think. You know, it doesn't ever have to be encapsulated in those four vows because it's something that we, we know. And once we know it, we know if what we're doing is in alignment with it or not. And that tension really becomes the tension of practice. Am I embodying this? Am I reflecting this? Am I honoring this thing that I feel that is, that is pulling me, or maybe in some cases pushing me, whether I can name it or not? It's kind of, it's, it kind of gets simplified later when we give it a name, I think. That's, that's almost like a cheat. We have to keep cycling back to that original, that original question that comes with it of what is this? 
and how do I, um, how do I give it life? Um, so I really, I get really excited about the vow part, <laughs> and and I and I think you know what I always want for people in this practice is is for everyone to spend time with that that unarticulated or less articulated aspect of vow so that it doesn't become something in our heads so that it doesn't become us trying to um, kind of play act something that we heard about it's never play acting if we if we can keep this other thing in mind thank you i have a question then <laughs> So I too feel really encouraged by wearing robes mm. and um, working with the forms. And recently here, we've been talking a lot about the forms and their function and how we relate to them and why we have them and why we have these forms and, you know, the conversations that take place, I think, everywhere in the West, especially, um, but maybe, but probably not exclusively. Um, so a couple of us have spent and, uh, and you now have spoken a bit about, you know, this monastic form that we um, have inherited. And, you know, we sit Zazen, which in Japan, as I understand it, is more of a priest practice or a monk's practice and not so much a lay practice, although that's changing, perhaps. And also, I understand in Japan, there really isn't this thing called a Zen center. Mm -hmm. They're temples <laughs> and they're hereditary priests who, you know, train they're, you know, the sons usually of the priest before them, and it's a family business, and there's a congregation, and they serve that congregation frequently by offering ceremonies that support transitions in life and death. Mm. So what we're doing is a big grand experiment, but still really, you know, informed by our Asian Japanese teachers. But I'm intrigued by this thing you said about how, you know, we find this balance point, and then we can let go you know, of the stuff that we think of as Zen. Mm. Um, and I, I think, you know, for me, there's this, I know I cling to this, you know, I depend in the sense that I depend on it and I feel at home in it. Um, and my, my the strength of that dependency has loosened a little bit in recent years. Um, but I feel like one of the functions of a priest in our society is being visible. And, and for all of us presenting that presence, you know, to kind of encourage others, like when we stand a certain way, new people come and think it's weird. But if they, they're around it for a while, it's like, oh, this person's really still, you know, they're really here. You know, that kind of thing might show up if they, if they keep coming. So for me, it's like, I wear this kind of ridiculous garb at so out of place in Austin, Texas in the 21st century. And um, sometimes I get told I'm culturally appropriating something that doesn't belong to me yes. um, and so on. It's like so many, it's like an endless <clears throat> conversation. But I think, I just want to ask you if you feel, I guess you do, because you're wearing your robes. It, it's still uh, helpful to people practicing and, and, and so-called lay people, you know, to see someone willing to take on these forms and work with them. And we can say, how does, why does this speak to me? Even when it says something like, I don't like it. <laughs> I think it's weird. I think it's, 
play acting. It's something that makes us engage in some way. So anyway, I'm just curious as to what you think about all that. I think a lot about that. I think it's, I mean, personally, I think it's, it's an absolute responsibility of priests to wear this in a public way, right? It, it's if it's if the four if everyone in the fourfold sangha is equally valuable, then we also uphold that. And I also think it's it's if we believe that those categories each have their own individual merit, I think it's disrespectful fundamentally to try to blur them. And so if you're someone who has the the benefits of being a priest, say within your own community or within the larger institutions of the tradition, and yet you live undercover essentially when you're out in the world and you also take on all the benefits of being undercover, and there are many, I think you're cheating. There's there is benefit um, in being recognizable. There is benefit in offering yourself as a model, even when you don't necessarily feel confident about doing that, right? Because people look to you for what you're doing, but they also get to see your struggle in what you're doing, right? That's That becomes a focal point that that matters it's i also i really notice who makes fun of me when i'm out on the street and i wear robes and the people who make fun of me are the same people who make fun of trans people they're the same people who make fun of 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 anybody who is standing out as different right it's very often college-aged boys who will shout out of a window or something, right? And so for me, I I also feel a sense of solidarity in it. There's only so much uh, hate and intolerance to go around. And if you can go and absorb a little bit of it, great. That's, you might as well. But I, I really want to see I really want to see priests exploring what it means to embody and to own the role of a priest in a, in a public way, in a, in a moment-to-moment way. I think that that project, which well, honestly we haven't maybe taken as seriously as we could in the West because we've tried to navigate these multiple worlds, that project is essential to the other project that we're talking about. Right. Lay people who are trying to figure out what it means to embody being a lay person should be able to see a priest trying to figure out what it means to embody being a priest. With no one cutting corners on either side. That's my my personal feeling about it. And that's the little pep talk I give myself so that I'll, uh, you know, remember to. To robe up. Thank you for your encouragement. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, I saw Tracy and I see Anne. So this has sparked some more discussion. So Tracy first and then Anne. Uh, Good morning, everyone. And thank you so much for your talk. Let me turn off Mm -hmm. 
Okay, um, excuse me while I try to leave the meeting on my phone <laughs> because I'm just out shopping <laughs> and <laughs> listening to everyone have this wonderful conversation. The robes, I, I don't, I, this is just going to be more like a statement, but, but yeah, I trained more traditionally many years ago with robes, lay robes. Oh, I still have a lay robe, my rocka suit sitting over there. <laughs> but nowadays, or actually just from what you said just today, um, Cohen, is that how you pronounce your name? Yes. Cohen. Uh, of the experience of Zazen. Oh man, it is so like putting on a robe. I feel embraced, supported, held up. I'm, you know, like really requested to, oh, right, this is what this is. Here's, yeah, here's your chance to show up. <laughs> you know, many other opportunities present themselves for that during the course of the day. So I'm a super lay practitioner. <laughs> Uh, maybe, yeah, a little unbalanced, like, like I think, uh, Bruce was talking about earlier. Um, but that sitting down, like it, I don't know if that's your experience at all, but that's just all I wanted to share with, with you and everyone. And thank you so much. Thank you. And yes, I, I think that, you know, part of, part of why this tradition looks the way that it does is because if, if what we're exploring is that practice verification, then the way that we explore it, especially at the beginning, is by doing the simplest things that we can do. And Zazen is the simplest thing that we can do, right? It has no other function. It has no beginning, middle, and end. It just has this one thing. And so if you want to figure out how to show up, there couldn't be a more perfect lab for that. And then I think over time it does it does come to feel like a uh, like a place that your body recognizes, right? It's you 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 enter into it and you say, "Oh, this, it's it's powerful." Thank you. So we have Anne, and then Melanie has raised her hand, and then I think we can, uh, unless there's a real burning question, we can let Cohen put his laundry in the dryer. <laughs> Cohen, thank you for your talk. I really appreciate you talking about lay practice um, because I, that's what I'm interested in. I really don't have an interest in, in uh, becoming a priest and haven't. Uh, so I, I appreciate you talking about, uh, I don't know if we want to call it progressing in, in your practice, if there is such a thing, but uh, maybe um, maintaining and growing in your practice. But you mentioned, or I think Choro actually brought up something that I've wondered about, and that is cultural appropriation. And I probably should ask a Japanese yen practitioner this question, but you spent a lot of time in Japan. And, I, and I'm curious, do Japanese yen practitioners feel offended that we've appropriated their religion and their culture? Um, That's a great question. So. You know what I can say personally, if uh, 
you know, if my teachers were to come and see me walking down the street in jeans and a t-shirt, they would be so disappointed in me because they feel very clearly in their own mind that I signed up for something and that signing up for that thing means taking on the whole thing. Uh, and, and I think because there's a, you know, it can go too, too far, actually the, you know, there's, there's a kind of, um, uh, snobbery that can happen in Japan too, where Japanese people will associate directly Japanese culture with Zen. You know, we do it here all the time and it, it drives me crazy, but, but, but Japanese people will also do it so that, you know, they will have the expectation that when they come to a Western Zen center, maybe it, they think it should look exactly like a Japanese temple and that the ceremony should be done in exactly the same way and that we should be chanting in Sino-Japanese and, you know, all of that because that's the real thing. Or, you know, or they'll feel that we're missing something because we aren't, there are certain, you know, there are types of ceremonies that are fundamental there that have never clicked culturally here. And they'll say, well, where's that? Um, so, you know, in my own experience of it, I, one of the original motivations for me to really stick to being someone who wears robes was the understanding that I, I have an agreement with my teachers to do that, um, that they, they wouldn't understand not doing that. That would look very weird to them. Um, so, you know, but then there's, there's another side where before I moved to Anchorage, this was in 2006, I was, um, I was thinking of things that I wanted to be able to kind of take with me. And I went to one of my teachers and I said, um, because I, I, had, I had helped my own teacher with a lot of funerals, but I had never officiated funerals in Japan. And so I, I understood one, one role within it, but I didn't feel like I really got the whole ceremony. So I went to one of my teachers and I said, would you mind just sitting down with me for an hour and kind of going over funerals because I'm going into this community and you never know, I'd really like to, to, to you know, be knowledgeable about that. And he looked at me and he said, why on earth would you go to Anchorage and do a Japanese funeral? He said, you know what Zen is, make it up. So there's that too, you know, it wasn't don't do it. It was genuine. He was genuinely kind of confounded by the idea that I would take something that is so culturally based and, and import it into a space where it wasn't an obvious fit. And I think that was a really good example too, because that's where, you know, it's one thing to do things in a really deeply traditional way among all of us, because we've all agreed to it, right? But if you pass away and I'm performing your funeral and now all of your friends and family who are not members of this community are coming and, and they're being offered something that is so foreign and so forbidding, so totally outside of their experience of what that ceremony might be, unless that's handled very skillfully, that, may be a, that service may be a disservice to everyone involved. Right. So I, I think we we have um, we have an obligation to look seriously at those questions. But but we also have I think we can have we have the right to the confidence 
that that we're we're upholding a line within Buddhism that made its way from India to China to Korea to Japan to Vietnam to Tibet, right? And that, for example, that every single one of those evolutions involved the robes. Maybe our robes eventually look a little bit different, right? But then we'll have to face the other question, which is who do you think you are to change the robes? We can't win, but, but we can accept the, the burden of it, I think, with some gratitude. I blame a privilege and just to add to that, um, that mm. one response I have, which may be totally a defensive response when I'm challenged, is to say my understanding of cultural appropriation is that a, a person from a group that's privileged takes something that they want, you know, from some other group and does something with it that's maybe not appropriate or it isn't, it isn't given, it isn't given. And, you know, Suzuki Roshi came and, you know, encouraged people to practice this way. So it's a gift. I feel it's a gift that's given. And, and that helps me to get over my feeling of, oh, this really isn't mine. You know, it, it is, <laughs> it was given. Thank you. Um, and Melanie has the last word. Wow, once again, it's kind of stunning. Um, so many things get stirred up. Uh, and I found this talk very, um, I really like the basics, the root of the basics. And it made me, you know, sometimes I don't have a question, I just want to ramble on. But I'm going to try not to do that today. Because I know that I was always interested in Zen. And when I showed up, I kind of dove in and then I've kind of retreated and sort of lost my way and I'm struggling to come back. Um, but I realized that when I was in high school, I started reading J. Krishnamurti. And what he says is basically, to me, what it said was, you're never going to get it. You can't, you can't get it. That sort of the fundamentals of life, you're not, you're not getting it. And it, so it was very depressing for me. Um, and it made me not want to join things or because that couldn't be it. It was really profoundly, uh, it affected me profoundly. And I, the reason I started reading his books was because I felt fear all the time. You know, maybe I was about to leave home and home wasn't that great. And I felt afraid. And I think that that is one of the fundamental things that still drives me. You know, community, yes, because I'm afraid <laughs> to be by myself. I need people. I mean, I don't mind being alone. I like being alone, but it's a different kind of thing. So I think that's my question. Um, have you felt really strong emotions like fear or like things like that that have driven you, that have come to the surface in the course of of practicing because I think life because I think the fear really is you know it's going to be over maybe we're going to die and so uh, which I appreciate in Zen we get to talk about yeah. Thank you. so I mean the the first part of the answer is just yes um, but uh, like you I think that that's that's so central to what the practice is asking us to to deal with Right. I, I've been witness recently to a few people close to me who are, um, I don't want to say they're dying, but they're, you know, their, their lives are, are coming to an end. Um, things are, are changing for them. They're losing certain capacities. There's this sense of, of things slipping away. And 
I think that, you know, what's, what's so profound about this practice for me, in a sense, is that it's very honest in saying, you don't get out of any of it, right? You, you are going to die and you are going to suffer, right? When the, something that really hit me just a few years ago was I was rethinking the, the story of the Buddha and how the Buddha had these four sights, right? He went out into the streets and he saw sickness and old age and death and renunciation and how, you know, we, we talk about him having his, this is, this is actually, this is a great analog to the earlier question with, with Jikun about uh, the arousing of the mind, right? The Buddha, before he was the Buddha, when he was Siddhartha, went out into the town and he had the arousal of mind because he saw suffering. And then, and then everything that followed from that couldn't have happened without that, right? It starts with the recognition of the inevitable. How do we face that? Do we look away from it? Do we look away from it in others? Or do we start living our lives in such a way that we notice moment to moment that, that I too am subject to old age and I too am subject to death and everyone I love is subject to impermanence. When, when we do that, then we take up what is the, I think the, the offer of this practice, which is to, to meet our resignation early which is to say to enter that kind of maturity early and then spend our whole lives with that rather than hoping that we'll arrive there at the end, right? We, we, we proactively try to tackle the things that make us grow old spiritually and and embrace that. To me, that's that's um, those are the kinds of teachings that gave me trust in the practice in the beginning, because I didn't feel like anyone was trying to convince me of anything or trick me into some alternate reality. Instead, the message is, yeah, all the stuff that you think is coming, you're right, and and whatever it is that you think you're going to get out of this, it doesn't get you out of that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, great. That was very helpful. Thank you. Well, thank you again, Cohen. A rich conversation after your very helpful, insightful talk. Thank you, all of you. Thank Take you care. again, Cohen. <laughs>